That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. A week ago, we were all talking about what's going to happen to the Republican Party. Remember that conversation? After Donald Trump loses. Mm. Can the Republican Party rebuild? And what will it take? And who's going to lead it? Well, today, that conversation is taking place about the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders, out with a strong piece uh, on what the Democratic Party has to do. And Bernie says we've got to get back to the issues that he talked about during the primary. Uh, got to get back to you know minimum wage, getting rid of these trade deals, and focusing on the working class Americans and focusing on jobs. And I've got to say, if the Clinton campaign had done more of that, maybe we wouldn't have lost Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and uh, and Michigan. Uh, and Bernie also has, contributing to that, a new book out, coming out November 17. This week, Bernie's new book, full-page ad in this morning's New York Times. It is called Our Revolution. Uh, published, if you will, if you please, by my publisher, Thomas Dunn of St. Martin's Press. And by the way, I know Bernie wrote every word of this book. And he, did, rare. It. he did it since the the convention in July. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, he went up. And, but, and remember, last month, October, he was on the road for Hillary Clinton almost every day. So he did this in August and September. There it is. Uh, Our Revolution, it's available now, comes out November 17th. And the other thing is, our good friend, uh, been in the studio many times, joined us last Tuesday for our election special. Congressman Keith Ellison of Minnesota has announced that as a former Bernie supporter and as co-chair of the Progressive Caucus in the... House of Representatives among the for the among the Democrats, right? That he is running for DNC chair, the new chair of the DNC, which I think is great. Love your take on it. Is Keith Ellison the answer? Eight six six fifty five Press. Would you support Keith Ellison? You know the part. You know the party needs. I think it needs a shake up from top to bottom. And if we start at the top, couldn't do better in my judgment than uh, than Keith Ellison. Shake up, it's got to have a shake up, I think, in its priorities, in its strategy, in its tactics, in its message, in its leadership, and its makeup, and, 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 partic- and its focus. And again, getting back to focusing on middle, the middle class, working class Americans, the Bernie message, the Keith Ellison message from the beginning. Here's uh, Keith Ellison uh, talking about, he was on... Um, was it Meet the Press? Good Morning America. Good Morning America yesterday, right. Saying, okay, so first of all, question, what went wrong? Our message of uh, strengthening uh, the middle class working people, uh, we just didn't penetrate well enough and we didn't have the kind of turnout that we really needed or expected. Yep, 
And uh, Keith has asked also, so what is the new focus going to be? This is where I think he is right on. And remember, you know, we heard about this so much during the campaign. The Democratic Party was raking in all kinds of money. They shattered every potential, every possible record in terms of raising money between the DNC, the Clinton campaign, and the super PAC supporting Hillary Clinton. And all that was good, but Keith Ellison says... I do believe that we should have to make the voters first, not the donors first. I love the donors and we thank them, but it it has to be that that the guys in the barbershop, the lady at the diner, the folks who are worried about whether that plant is going to close, they've got to be our focus. Yep, focus on the voters, focus on the workers, don't focus on the donors, don't make the whole party look like the Republican Party. (laughs) meaning the only people that count are the people that write the big, big, huge checks. Uh, And Keith Ellison saying, as far as Donald Trump goes, um, yeah, we'll continue to oppose some of his policies. We oppose his uh, misogyny. We oppose his uh, uh, picking on people of different ethnic and and, and religious groups. And we want to make it clear that if he tries to deliver on his word, that we will be there to say no. So, Keith, what are you going to do about it? He just gives a little hint here uh, before he made his big announcement. I've been talking to people all over the country, city council members, grassroots leaders, party leaders, members in Congress. And you know what? The truth is, uh, I'll have something to say real soon. (laughs) I'll have something to say real soon. He has said it. Keith Ellison. For DNC chair, and by the way, he has already secured the endorsement of Chuck Schumer, who will be the next leader, Democratic leader in the Senate, and Harry Reid, uh, the current uh, Democratic leader uh, in the Senate. So, f- And he's got the support of Bernie Sanders as well. Uh, haven't heard from Nancy Pelosi yet, but I'll bet you that... Uh, <clears throat> If they haven't already talked, they'll be talking. Yeah. And I met, I imagine they already, they already have talked. Uh, Executive Editor Elias Isquith joining us on our news line. Well, Elias, last Monday we had an ty- entirely different conversation, huh? Uh, hey, Bill. Hey, everyone. Yeah, yeah we did. I, I, I've spent a lot of the week, even though I personally did not uh, push President-elect Trump over the finish line, I felt obligated to apologize to all the people who looked to me for assurance, and I gave it to them. And now, uh, you know, a week later, it, it, it doesn't look like that was great advice. Uh, we all feel a little, a little, a few pangs of guilt about that now. But so we are, we're, we're starting to see the first inklings of what a Trump administration might look like. The headline in the Huffington Post this morning is white nationalist in the White House. Uh, they're not talking about Donald Trump necessarily, right? But about Steve Bannon. What does that mean, Elias? Yeah, I mean, I think yesterday... Pretty troubling, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, Steve Bannon is is a... I've not never met him, but you don't need to dig very deep to find evidence that he's a contemptible person, frankly. Um, As your listeners, I'm sure, know, Breitbart is his baby, and it is, you know, it's pretty much everything awful about the Trump movement condensed into... Uh, a garish-looking website um, that probably is about to explode in terms of its uh, readership and its its connections and so forth. But anyway, so yeah, 
Bannon is a really bad character. I felt like yesterday might have been a preview of hopefully just the next four years in one important way, which is you had uh, almost like a test run for people to get used to what this is going to be like. So you had the Bannon announcement. You had Priebus being announced as the chief of staff. And then you also had Trump going on 60 Minutes. And, you know, the Priebus thing, you know, as people probably know, former RNC chair, uh, a lot of people are taking that as evidence that Trump is going to be some sort of, like, quote-unquote, normal Republican. Um, that gets undermined by the fact that Bannon's coming along with him. Uh, it's in all likelihood, you know, Priebus is just a window dressing to kind of make rank-and-file Republicans feel like they can pretend uh, Donald Trump is normal. Uh, and then you have Trump going on 60 Minutes, with, which I know you guys have spoken about, uh, and he's saying all these things that make him sound like a slightly less deranged person than the one who just won the election. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think what people need to get used to doing, which is something that pe- that people in countries like Russia and Turkey and other countries where they have authoritarian movements are used to doing already, which is you can't pay attention to just the headline. Uh, and the headline here would be, you know, Priebus, and then Trump says on 60 Minutes things that make him sound less crazy. I think people need to get used to looking at that, but then paying more attention to something like Bannon where the consequences of bringing Bannon into the White House are probably a lot more uh, significant and long-lasting than anything Trump says on 60 Minutes. Because Trump's going to go on TV for the next four years, and he's going to say anything he wants. Right. And, and we're going to have to get used to really understanding that what the President of the United States says uh, is not necessarily indicative of his actual policy, which unfortunately might look a lot more like Steve Bannon. Yeah. And Bannon, I mean, as you point out, and others, there's no doubt, you just look at the record. I mean, it's not just a conservative website, right? This is alt-right. This is the extremist. This is the white nationalist website. that He invited them. Uh, this is the KKK, right? This is, That's who Steve Bannon is. And also, he's the anti-Reince Priebus, right? He's the anti-Republican establishment, Republican Party, uh, and led Trump in that direction. And now he is Trump's right-hand man in the White House, chief, chief chief strategist, which really puts him closer in in ways than the chief of staff, right? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy Pretty to say frightening. this, but it's crazy and frightening to say this, but it's it seems to be quite likely that at least in the beginning of the first year, Steve Bannon would arguably be one of the five most powerful people on the planet. Um, if you said that a month ago, anybody who knew him who wasn't a fan would have a chill go up their spine. Um, so yeah, I mean, that is really significant. He is not just right wing. He is, he's the kind of right winger that ever since Nixon, Republicans have pretended they don't court mm-hmm. when they in fact do. Yeah. Um, he's sort of the, you know, if you're a liberal and you, you imagine the worst possible version of, you know, what you think of when you think of the modern conservative movement, you get Bannon. Welcome to the program, Helena Bademiller-Evich from Politico, uh, who is back to talk about uh, some of the maybe unexpected voters who made the difference uh, in this election. First of all, uh, what I find surprising about this, yeah, they're out there, but there are not many of them. I mean, the kind of the definition yeah. of rural is sparsely right. populated, right? Well, it was right? 17% of the electorate this time. Uh in mm-hmm. these in these swing states, they tend to have a higher 
especially in the Rust Belt, have a higher percentage of rural voters. So I think in Pennsylvania, it's like one in four voters are live in rural huh, areas. Right. Um, and I think so, in a couple other, it's one in five. I mean, this, this is a slice of the electorate that votes. So what was their motivation? Did they feel neglected? Yes. And they feel that everyone living in cities, the establishment has looked down on them, has done nothing for them. Uh, you know, crop prices are in the tank. They, these places have seen manufacturing jobs leave. And you have to think about in a small city, if one plant closes down, sometimes that's that's it. You know, they right. probably don't have a very diversified economy. Um, and culturally, they feel very separated from from, from the, dis- the discussions that are going on in politics. And the and people urban. probably who live in, in cities, right? I mean, if you think yeah. about the big cities, whether it's L.A. or San Francisco or Portland or Seattle or New York or Philadelphia or, or Washington, D.C., or Atlanta mm-hmm. or Miami, they're all democratic cities. Yeah, right. And a lot of those, I mean, a lot of uh, urban dwellers now don't really have a connection to rural America. Chicago. Right. Don't I'm just trying right. to think of a big city Understand. that's a Republican city. I can't think of. I I, I can't think of. I mean, one. it's Houston. No, they have no. a. Well, I I, I don't know. I, I know their mayor. Maybe. Is, I know their mayor. Right. Is Maybe. Democrat, but. but yeah. So I, my thinking here in watching all this, you know, I cover food and agriculture, so I. I talk to people, work with mm-hmm. people, have colleagues in rural America, living and working in rural America. Um, these are good people, and a lot there is a lot of sort of simmering resentment. And it's not just rural Americans toward urban dwellers. I cannot tell you how many condescending remarks I've heard from urban dwellers and even the media just being sort of dismissive of this idea that, that rural voters are... Uh, you know, an, an electorate, a chunk of the electorate to pay attention to. And so I think it goes both ways, and I think it's worsening. And, and for Democrats, this could be a big problem in 2018. You've got farm state, senators up, Heitkamp, Klobuchar. I mean, there's a long list of them. And, and if, if Democrats are totally not even playing on for the rural voter, I don't know down the road how that will work out. I, I, I grew up in South Carolina. I've talked about this many times. Yeah. I know a lot of very rural people. Um and I, one of the things that I think people need to realize about this election is when you use the word ignorant, a lot of times, right, Yeah. that is the worst thing you can say yeah. to a rural voter. Right. And a lot of times it's a matter of just exposure, right? The only people of color they see a lot of times are on the news. Yeah. Um, it's just an exposure thing for them. But to say that you're just being ignorant about something, right. they take it in the worst possible way. And... That just can't keep happening. Here's the disconnect for me. Mm-hmm. What does a man who has, who lives in a gilded penthouse on Fifth <clears throat> Avenue in New York have in common with any of these people? Nothing. He knows it's, nothing about their life. He doesn't care about question. their issues. Why do they identify with him? It's. I think it's the way he spoke to them. You know, he would show up and he wouldn't, talk about ag policy really in a on a farm but he would go i love farmers i love farmers what they're doing to you what they're doing to in washington the war on american farmers despicable the epa he just he empathized with them he didn't talk about point you know here are the 10 things i'm going to do for rural america rural development you know hillary clinton actually has a very detailed plan on rural she has a detailed plan on everything And uh, she didn't really do that many rural stops uh, in the general uh, campaign. And, you know, 
a lot of the Democratic folks I've I talked to for this story were saying, look, Democrats are not going to win in these rural areas, but they can't lose three to one. They can't just not, you know, yeah. not compete in these places, especially in these key swing states where they do have a higher rural population. So in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, which are the three that if Hillary had won, I right. mean, this would be all so, over. Yeah, Michigan, is, is 57, where... 38, Trump in rural areas. Right. Um, but in those three states particularly, there were blocks of rural voters that, that the yeah, Clinton the campaign margins. never even went out went, went after is that and and could have could have made the difference. My because she didn't lose Pennsylvania by that much. I don't yeah, think I yeah. forget the number exactly. Well, Pennsylvania still has you know Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, which carry right. a yeah. great yeah. big chunk of the population. Um, yeah, the the folks I talked to for the story really felt that it was a half-hearted attempt. You know, they had one staffer dedicated to rural uh, outreach in Brooklyn, and that was like a few weeks maybe eight weeks, seven, eight weeks before the election. Um, Obama in 2008 did put together a small staff, had a lot of uh, focus on ground game. And um, the Democrats have seen their their support erode in rural America. I think Obama in 2008 got 41% and Clinton's down to 29%. So when, again, when you look at these key states where there are more rural voters, um, that's a trend that's that should be worrisome to Democrats. And are there issues, agricultural issues or social issues? I think or? it's I think it's more social, cultural, and trade. I think the anti-trade, um, you know, these people are stealing their our jobs. They're taking advantage of us. You know, we're not fighting for them. I think those are the types of messages. Um, agriculture is a really important anchor for these communities, but. Um, it doesn't seem to me that people are really voting on where, you know, a president is on like farm bill issues. They're voting more, you know, does this person identify with me? Are they listening to me? And on that, Trump was able to, even though he's a New York City slicker real estate yeah, yeah, mogul, I mean, I mean, you know, by all accounts, very. Um, when's the last time he was on a farm? Well, on the campaign, he did visit farms. Trump but, yeah. hates rural voters. I mean, let's just not sugarcoat it. Yeah. He hates these people. He hates these people. He would rather be dead than be caught on a farm somewhere <laughs> and have to shake hands with a with a farmer who's been working in the field. He hates you if you're he, a rural voter. He visited more farms, I believe, than Hillary Clinton. I'm not Although saying that he didn't. His, yeah. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying he would rather be dead. He doesn't hang out with them. Yeah. But, those, those aren't his people. But, but, but they came out for him. Well, we're starting to see the first signs of what a new Trump administration might look like. Ben Geeman, political reporter for the National Journal, a good friend of the program, back in the studio to help walk us through it. Hello, Ben. Good to see you. What about the Republican Party? Because there are so many inside the Republican Party, so many naysayers. In fact, a week ago, we were all having the conversation about who would emerge to rebuild the Republican Party uh, the, uh, among the never-Trump people after Trump loses, while well, here he now he's won. So what happens to all those people, Republicans, who were either lukewarm or actually did not support Donald Trump? What we've seen so far, especially from the kind of never-Trump movement on Capitol Hill, is an immediate extension of olive branches. You've had lawmakers such as uh, Lindsey Graham and Ben Sass um, in, in the Senate saying, 
look, you know, acknowledging that they did not want Trump to win, uh, that they didn't support Trump, but that they're immediately saying we should work with him and we'll look for opportunities to collaborate together. Ben Sass had a whole op-ed on this. And I think this is going to be part of... Even um, Lindsey Graham. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He said, you know, I hope there's things we can uh, we, we can work together on. And um, uh, I mean, look, they have their stars aligned in a way that happens perhaps once in a generation. So I think that given the sort of number of policy goals among Republicans who both did and did not support Trump, right. to the extent that they can all sort of row in the same direction, they're going to try to. And I think that's very worrisome, actually, for people on the left, not only because they oppose those policies for, you know, for any number of reasons, but it feeds into, I think, what we're quickly seeing is this concern that Trump is being normalized despite this campaign mm -hmm. that was so, you know, in many ways uh, uh, hurtful and dangerous toward a lot of uh, especially vulnerable populations. If you were someone who during the election said, I cannot support Donald Trump for any reason whatsoever, and you go back on that, I, I think you should have to answer for that. I think every single time that you open your mouth and say that you are supporting Donald Trump on this piece of legislation, this initiative or whatever, yeah. you've got to answer. You said this guy was the most dangerous pick that we could possibly have as president, and now you're lining up. Yeah, but yeah. what's different? There's something about that Oval Office, baby. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. I know. Yep. No, I think a lot of them are going to really sort of be kind of uh, kind of hoping for the best and trying to. Well, but may, yeah. might it be more than that? I mean, Reince Priebus's best friend is fellow Wisconsinite, whatever you call him, Paul Ryan. Yeah. And so, I mean, I could see that, and, and we also know there are even stories that Donald Trump may not spend that much time in the White House. After all, he's got the Trump International Hotel three blocks away yep. where he'll no doubt have a presidential suite. Uh, and then he's got, you know, just 45 minutes away, the Trump Tower in New mm -hmm. York, right? Um, that he might be... So there's all this talk that that it may, Paul Ryan maybe could end up basically running the country. Yeah, I think it's going to depend on on the issues. I mean, I think it's very true that Trump in a lot of ways, and I think this was obvious during the campaign, doesn't have a lot of policy opinions, or when he does, they're sort of come to fairly recently. Can you that, imagine his reading a briefing book? No. It might, be, it might need to be a little thin. Um, but, <laughs> but I, do, but look, that's I don't that, think he can yeah. read, frankly. But, I'm not making a joke. <laughs> I honestly don't think Donald Trump can read, period. Well, but he does use teleprompters. Yeah, that's that's the one thing, right? Like yeah, the, the right. guy that wrote the book with him or wrote the book for him, uh, the art of the deal says they would go on these long flights, and Trump would he never yeah. saw him read yeah. a mm. magazine or a newspaper or a book. Wow. When he has to name his favorite book, he only names the ones that he's written. I genuinely don't think Donald. I honest to God, I think he's illiterate and he cannot that's, read. Well. Uh, the teleprompter is the only flaw in my argument, but yeah, I'll figure well, that out. Maybe there'll be some leaks from the White House. <laughs> I'll figure that one out. That, that will There's a way to square right. that circle, I know. Yeah. How exciting to uh, welcome here to the program our good friend, frequent guest host of the program, and uh, host of the Decode DC podcast, the one and only Jimmy Williams. So we're not going to let you off the hook. What the hell happened? Uh, America's angry. America is unsettled. America is, um, is oddly enough, just like the rest of the world. And the world is in a funky place right now. And, um, you know, it's, it's, this is a place of, of, of great economic potential and current, um, success. Unemployment's lowest it's been since 2000 and whatever. 
Um, corporate profits have never been higher in the history of the United States of America in 240-something years. The stock market is doing terrifyingly well. Housing prices are down. People can get loans, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, wages are beginning to go up, and yet the country thinks we are in an, a, a moral and spiritual recession. Um, I don't know the answers to that other than to say to you that um, I'm sick and tired of this idea that Hillary Clinton was a flawed candidate. Let me be terrifyingly clear about something. Hillary Clinton is as flawed as any other person that we've ever run for president, including Republicans, because she's human. Mm. And she makes mistakes, and she made mistakes. Barack Obama was a flawed candidate because he was, A, an inexperienced first-term senator who happened to be African-American, and a lot of Americans said, I'll take that. Thank God they did. Mm -hmm. And a successful guy in his second term at 57%. Um, Ronald Reagan, exactly the same thing. Right. Um, When you bet on the person with the most experience, Americans just don't give a damn. Uh, And that's a scary thought. Now, I think there's also a bigger problem, which is not so much that Hillary Clinton was flawed. Um, And by the way, the Republicans put up flawed candidates every single time, and they're always establishment. And when they aren't, they tend to do better. Ronald Reagan was not an establishment candidate. Right, right. Um, And I think you know this better than anybody. But here's what I do know. I do know that 18 million people who voted in 2012 sat on their asses and stayed home. Well, guess what? I hope you all burn in hell (laughs) (laughs) because you just got a neo-fascist, a white nationalist as the number two at the White House and a guy named Steve Bannon. So, you know, there's a woman that used to hand out our checks when I worked for a trade association and every other Friday she'd come around and she would hand us your check, your paycheck and say, you deserve it. Mm. Well, guess what, America? You deserve Donald Trump. I'm going to say something that's going to piss off a lot of Democrats. I not only, Donald Trump is going to be my president, he's going to be our president, but I'm going to support him when I can. And I'm going to be the loyal opposition when when I cannot. But if Donald Trump puts together a a transportation package that puts Americans to work, I'm going to support that. And I don't give a damn if it adds to the deficit because I don't care about the deficit. I never have and I never will because deficits don't matter. And economists that tell you that they do, they're lying, and politicians that tell you to do are also lying. Um, if he passes a tax cut that gets rid of things like the, the carried interest loophole and other things like that, that'd be fantastic for me. I don't need my taxes cut. I don't need a tax cut. I don't. Will it make me spend more money? Probably not. But will it make some others do it? Yes. So it's half trickle. Um, if he appoints um, uh, judges that Democrats agree with, so be it. Fine with me. You know, if he decides he wants to close Gitmo, fine, go be it. If he wants to get the rest of our troops out of the Middle East, please, I beg you, for God's sakes. Um, and that's the other problem here, which is that foreign policy, while not in the forefronts of Americans' minds, because it never is unless we're at war, mm. this is what is happening here. America feels less secure. We are in a living in a post-9-11 mentality and reality. And it's all because of the Middle East. And unless we get out of that damn place, it is not our problem. We should defend Israel and, and sell them what we need to sell them, but we should not be in the Middle East. We've got to get out. And I understand why terrorists hate us, because we are sitting in their front yards and they hate it. We are going to be talking uh, foreign policy exclusively with yes. Joe Cirincioni. We'll yep. come back in the next half hour. So I want to come back to it's one lesson that I took away from this, just want to see if you agree, is that the over, one overriding powerful factor in any presidential election is that may trump everything else, pardon the word, right, is change. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, people did, after eight years, Americans are kind of ready for change, even if the change agent is imperfect. That's right. Right? Yeah. They'll take it. But they, the last and one the thing last Hillary guy did not represent was... Was change. Was change. Right. I, look, I wanted Hillary to win. Um, and I don't know... And honestly, I'm going to say something else is going to piss off a lot of Democrats, because I'm in that mood Just remember days. who's pissing you off today. It's <laughs> this him. Me. Him, him. It's not right, Bill right. or Peter or Politico. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right, Jamie. It's me. Here's the thing. Bernie or Bust... I hate to break the news to people, but Bernie Sanders is even more establishment than Hillary Clinton. And to think that he's not is to deny oh, reality. That. How? The guy's been here since 1991 as a sitting member of Congress. Mm-hmm. The guy goes on as every an outsider, single... As a socialist, not I, even I as get a it. I totally understand that. But then, yeah. he, then he should have run as a socialist I'll give you as an this. outsider. He was part of the establishment. And, well, and, Donald Trump and, never has been. You're right. No, he's more outsider. By the way, I didn't vote for Donald Trump. He's <laughs> more. No, he's more of an outsider than Bernie. Yeah. But but Bernie was not part of the inner circle, and he was not, you know, first lady, secretary of state. No, but he was chairman of the VA, the the Veterans Committee. He was as you know, an I, independent. I, I, as an independent, yes. But no, I mean, yeah, but he still ran as, as a, a Democrat. Of the Senate. I'm not. Yeah, he's part of the establishment. But the reason I think Bernie was so successful is he was seen as not part of the club. He's yeah, never been part but, of the club. But, but he took money from... He, look, I love big labor. You know I love big labor. He took just as much money from big labor as every other Democrat. No, yeah, no, that's that, those, are, those, were his, those were his, he, those were his he, donors. He raised, I got it. He raised $236 no, I'm talking about during his, from no, small No, I'm talking donors. about during his time in Congress. I'm not talking about for his presidential. The guy has been a part of the system since 1991. Jimmy, you're on thin ice. You look at how much money Bernie Sanders raised compared to how much Hillary Clinton raised. I'm not talking about the Bernie presidency. Bernie Sanders even got $2,000 for a speech that he gave, and Hillary Clinton's getting $250,000 I agree from with freaking you. Goldman Sachs. I agree with you 1,000% that there is clearly no pay equity when it comes to giving you speeches to banks. You said you were going to piss off Democrats. You pissed this one off. <laughs> Good. Good. It's, no. fine. it's time for no. Democrats Don't to be pissed off. Don't dump on Bernie. No, I'm not dumping on Bernie. I'm just saying that this idea that he is completely anti-establishment is wrong. He's been in Washington since 1991. I'm sorry, but he is a part of the establishment. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not denying that, but okay. he is not part. He's but not, to your original question, people voted for Donald Trump. He did represent change. Yes, he did represent so change. Support. He did represent change. That's exactly right. And I do, and so I did do, Trump. So would would Bernie have uh, been able to beat Donald Trump? I don't know the answer. I I, I don't know the answer to that. Because I've never, I, 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 like I don't bet, I don't do, yeah, shoulda, woulda, yeah. coulda. But what I can tell you is if 18 million people had gotten off their asses and voted, right, then we would not be having this problem right there, now. But that's an interesting question. We know, we were told, right, and I, I, um, some of it is certainly true, that the Democratic Party had a phenomenal ground operation. They had millions of people out there on Election Day and before calling the whole thing. Yep. Carol went over to... Virginia spent the whole day over there yep. knocking on doors, and Trump had, like, basically none. A skeletal staff. And his people came out, and our people did not. Why? Uh, well, the RNC helped, and the RNC they walked did. lockstep with him, and let's yep. just call it what it is. Yep. Um, and I know I have friends over at the RNC, and they're like, don't underestimate our ground game. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I would never underestimate your ground game. You've been studying ours for decades. <laughs> Why <laughs> they, would I? <laughs> they stole it. Right? Well, and yeah. good for them. Good, absolutely. You right. know? But uh, it did. We did fail. We did fail. Um, you know, here's the great irony. Well, part of it. of it was, don't you think that that Trump, give him credit for this, he did inspire and his 
supporters yeah. to come out and vote. The silent majority, as they call it, or as he calls it, and as they call themselves. I don't akin, akin, uh, make it akin to what Ronald Reagan and his silent majority. I think that's a very different kind of thing. I totally um, agree. And, yeah. um, but, but they did show up. What happened was we didn't. Mm-hmm. And when you don't sh- listen, women determine elections, determine every election. Every, the, the, women hold all the power. They hold the power to populate this wonderful planet. They hold the power to screw politicians when they don't like them. And they did. And they did it even though a woman was running. The, fa- the factor of the woman did not go for Hill- for another woman this time. Um, but listen, hey, <laughs> no, Christ, no, no point in crying over spilt milk. What we do know is is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 838 years old, and I hope she lives to be 938. <laughs> Anthony Kennedy, who is a good yeah. on social issues, is 828 years old, and I hope he sp- lives to be 928. Stephen Breyer. Yeah, and uh, Justice Breyer as well. Um, and now and, let's not forget that Barack Obama had his Supreme Court pick stolen from that's him correct. by Mitch McConnell. That's right. Uh, to replace Antonin Scalia. That's right. You know, so we've got that, too. But there's a piece in Politico this morning by uh, Burgess Everett and some others about how you know, the Democrats are reticent to use the filibuster. I mean, my advice to them is, having been a staffer for a really long time over there, you better pick your battles and pick them wisely. Um, because Mitch McConnell is the most ruthless SOB politician I've ever met in my life, and I respect him for it. But he will not tolerate what happens in that chamber if Democrats do crazy stuff and act like Republicans did. We are joined by uh, Mr. Foreign Policy, our foreign policy guru from the Plowshares when We borrow him every once in a while. <laughs> Joe Sirincione. Hello, Joe. It's good to have you back. My pleasure. So here is Donald Trump last night, asked by Leslie Stahl about something he wasn't clear about during the campaign. Let's see if we can clear it up. You have said that you're going to destroy ISIS. Now, how, how are you going to destroy I don't tell you that. I don't tell you that. I'm not like the people going in right now and fighting Mosul, and they announced it four months before they went into Mosul, and everybody now is, it's a tough fight, because, number one, the people from the leaders of ISIS have left. What do you, troops on the ground? I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to tell them anything. I don't want to tell anybody anything. But what about the American people? We have great generals. We have great generals. You said you knew more than the generals about ISIS. Uh, Well, I... I'll be honest with you, I probably do, because look at the job they've done. Oh, boy. There you go. Wow, I have a headache. There you go. It will give you a headache. (laughs) Trying to to follow that logic. I think it's pretty clear, Joe. He doesn't have a clue. No, he doesn't. No, he has no idea what to do, what he wants to do. He just has a slogan, I'm going to bomb the crap out of them. Um, But he doesn't know what to do. uh, Let me just tell you something. I was with uh, a White House official last night. And one of the things he was upset about, among others, was that Trump was going to come into office and get credit for defeating ISIS, something that they're actually doing. We are pushing them out of Mosul. We are attacking them at their capital in, in, in Raqqa. It's very possible by that by the time, by January 20th, that, that ISIS will be d- down to a few small uh, enclaves and we'll be talking about mopping up operations. So maybe if we're fortunate, he won't have to know what to do. We will have already done it. Boy, that's uh, wishful thinking. I don't think it's going to happen that fast. But, Jimmy? I don't know the answer to that. ISIS has been something that we have (laughs) underestimated, and Mm -hmm. um, we have not – I mean, it's not that we haven't taken them seriously. We have taken them seriously. It's just from political influences, we have not been able to take them on in ways that I would have liked to have seen us take them on. But that being said, 
um, they are diminishing. That's a fact yeah. of life, and our generals are telling us that. Um, here's what's interesting is that if, in fact, Joe's right, if ISIS goes away, Trump will get um, credit for it. If um, if Trump passes a, trans, a transportation and infrastructure package, he'll get credit for it, despite the fact that Obama proposed one. Um, if unemployment goes down to 3%, Trump will get credit for it, just mm-hmm. like Barack Obama got credit for unemployment being at 4.9%. In Democrats' minds, but not in Republicans. And so, when you when you live in the White House, you get credit. Mm-hmm. You also get blamed. He's yeah. the only reason I say this about ISIS. And these are tough, tough, tough fighters. But it's a pyramid scheme. And once a pyramid sure scheme starts yeah. to collapse, you know, the recruitment. There's there's hardly any recruitment going in. Remember when there was three thousand, yeah. four thousand a month coming yeah. in? Yeah. Well, that is over. Nobody. I mean, we were worried about American citizens going over there and joining ISIS. That was actively happening. And, and so the the whole thing could collapse more rapidly than we think. But you're right. It's, it's overly optimistic to think they're going to be done by January 20th, but you can see that we're in motion here. It's working, and the, you know, and the people that are doing it are the Iraqis themselves who are doing this with our assistance and guidance. A week ago, um, Republicans were saying, watch, this is going to be our Brexit. Is it? Our Brexit. I mean this election? This election. The, oh. What happened? Our Brexit? Oh, uh, Democrats are still in tears. You talk to anybody. I, I no longer greet my friends with how are you. There is no good answer yeah, I'm getting no, to, to that. But People I mean, are in, in mourning. I sat breaking, shiver over breaking, the weekend. To- breaking with the establishment and everything that was sort of with set With everything. Up. With the Democratic establishment, the Republican uh, uh, establishment, the norms. There the, isn't a single major newspaper the, in the country the that Brexit endorsed this turned the UK upside down. This uh, election has turned... I mean, do you think that's a fair analogy? This is uh, what Jimmy's uh, William Butler Yates wrote a great poem called The Second Coming, and I keep trying to explain this to people. The center cannot he, hold. The center yeah. cannot hold. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. And there's something happening in the world, and we go through these cycles. They're called gyres, right? And so mm. they're these time warps, if you will. And the world is uneasy right now. Um, and it reminds me a lot of the 1960s, having looked at the 1960s from an historical perspective, of the 50s where everyone was fine and the cleavers were okay. In the 1960s, they weren't. Um, and things got a little bit scarier, and people began to become um, unrested, if you will. I think that's what's happening right now, um, and I think mm-hmm. you just need strong leadership. Whether Donald Trump gives us that or not, I don't know uh, the answer. I'd be careful with that word, strong leadership. Uh, well, that's what I want. I know, I, I, I know, know, I know. I just don't know what I it know. means for him. I know, I, yeah. You know. Uh, I some friends, again, former administration colleagues, just came back from Europe, uh, uh, and they said that the Europeans greeted them with, well, now you know what we've been facing. Mm-hmm. And we, we never thought it was going to hit you. And we didn't think it was going to hit you first. I mean, this is the first of the ultra-nationalist, racist, I think, frankly, proto-fascist movements to actually seize state power. It hasn't happened in France. It came close in Austria, but That's hasn't. Right. But now these groups are on the rise, and Trump is making common cause with them. He's meeting with these in opposition ultra-nationalist leaders, not the leaders Let's of the actual others, countries. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. And with that positive note, <laughs> we say, stay tuned. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. Just a quick note, uh, there are a lot of uh, 
reasons put forward for why Hillary Clinton lost the election last Tuesday, something none of us wanted to see happen. But one thing that doesn't add up is her statement over the weekend blaming her loss on Jim Comey and his announcement that he was going to reopen her the investigation into her emails. That sure didn't help Hillary. It hurt her some, but was not totally responsible for her loss. And remember, there would have been no email investigation if she hadn't made the decision to use a private server in the first place. My parting shout for today, folks. Come back and see us tomorrow. We'll be looking for you. This is The Bill Press Show.